Janet Moses was a 22-year-old woman from New Zealand. In 2007, Miss Moses was under extreme stress. Her grandmother, with whom she was very close, had recently passed away. She was raising two young children, and she was having trouble with her romantic partner, who was rumored to have been unfaithful. Around this time, members of her family had stolen a concrete lion from the front of the Greytown Hotel, as the lion was their family symbol. Shortly after this, Miss Moses began to display odd and uncharacteristic behavior. She became withdrawn and despondent. She displayed periods of agitation and neglected her hygiene. She had difficulty caring for her children and would at times act aggressively. The family became concerned as they felt that Miss Moses was quote unquote acting like a lion. The family called in an elder in the Maori community to heal her. The elder told the family that they had been cursed when they stole the lion, as it was an antiquity and had been separated from its mate. He instructed the family to return the lion in order to remove the curse and improve Miss Moses' condition. He told the family that it was their responsibility to heal Miss Moses, and after praying over her, he left the family on their own. The family did return the lion, and Miss Moses reportedly got better for a short period of time. However, her symptoms quickly returned and appeared to be becoming more severe. The family, which included Miss Moses' immediate and extended family members, decided to conduct an exorcism, or lifting ceremony, as it is called in the Maori community, to remove the demon which was inhabiting her body. By all accounts, Miss Moses consented to the ritual, which went on for several days. The family continuously chanted, go with peace and love. The family members neglected their own self-care, often staying awake for days. At one point, they placed Miss Moses in a cold shower, which startled her and appeared to return her to her normal self. The family believed this indicated that the demon did not like water, and they began using water as a means for eradicating the evil spirit. Miss Moses was repeatedly doused with bowls of water. She screamed for them to stop, stating that she could not breathe, and attempted to get away from her family. However, her family members just believed this was further evidence that they were on the right course. During this time, a teenage girl in the home, who was sleep deprived and hot, began to pass out, her eyes rolling back in her head. The family, believing this was a sign the demon was now trying to possess this girl as well, began holding her down and dousing her with water. The girl also cried for them to stop and attempted to escape. Meanwhile, the family also continued to pour water on Miss Moses' face and sucked on her eyeballs, trying to remove the evil spirit. Eventually, Miss Moses' jaw locked, which the family members believed was a sign that they were close to getting the demon to leave her body. They pried her mouth open and continued to pour water down her throat, which resulted in her drowning to death. Certain that the demon had now traveled fully into the body of the teenage girl, the family began focusing their efforts on her, but one of the family members became concerned and left to bring another elder back to the home. When the elder arrived, he instructed the family to bring the girl to the hospital immediately, which they did. Nine of Miss Moses' family members were later charged in her death. The trial centered mainly on the issues of consent and whether or not Miss Moses consented to the acts that resulted in her death. 
During the trial, it was determined that the concrete lion the family stole was not actually an antiquity and had been purchased at a shop that sold lawn ornaments. However, the family members stated that they believed that what they did was right, and although devastated by Miss Moses' death, continued to believe her symptoms had been caused by possession. Five of the family members were convicted, but none were required to serve time in prison. Rather, they received community supervision and were required to attend a cultural awareness class. This episode is about demonic possession. everyone and welcome to the first episode of Psychology After Dark. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And I'm Dr. David Morelos. Thanks for joining us. Before we dive into our discussion about this case and about demonic possession in general, we just wanted to give you all a quick introduction to ourselves and to this podcast. Like I said, I'm Dr. Jessica McCono and I'm a clinical psychologist. My area of expertise is in criminal forensic psychology, and that's the area of psychology that concerns itself with the criminal justice system. And I'm Dr. David Morelos. While most people are familiar with the field of psychology as Jessica practices it, few are familiar with the field of inquiry known as transpersonal psychology. Part of the issue is that even transpersonalists debate what the term means, but it basically breaks down to trans, to go beyond, and personal, the self or ego as we understand it. Transpersonalists love to study the experience of being human beyond what is normally studied by psychologists. This could be all manner of things, and I hate using this word, fringe. In reality, we as human beings have so many experiences that cannot be easily explained by contemporary psychology. Experiences with the divine, near-death experiences, encounters with spiritual beings, psychedelic experiences, spiritual crisis, and on and on. It is my personal belief that problems are not limited to one field of inquiry, and that solutions must span across multiple academic disciplines. In that vein, you'll hear me pull from philosophy, art, literature, theology, and science to try to give the psychological perspective on these topics some wholeness. We are a couple, and we met in prison. We love telling people that. We met there because we worked there together. We didn't do time there together or anything like that. I work there as a forensic psychologist doing mental health evaluations for the courts, and David works as a drug treatment provider. I also teach forensic psychology at a local university, and David's a consultant for a nonprofit organization that helps previously incarcerated individuals re-enter society. We both have a lot of history working with the darkness in people's lives. So we thought, why not do a podcast on it? We really live and breathe things like true crime and abnormal psychology. We listen to a lot of podcasts. We watch a lot of documentaries. And we spend our free time reading about the aspects of the human condition that are odd, strange, taboo, and oftentimes criminal. So that's what this podcast is about. We'll be exploring all of the strange and dark things that both fascinate and scare us. And we'll be talking about the psychology behind these occurrences. 
Wrestling the darkness in people is a full-time job for us. For me, this work is fulfilling on many levels. Prison is a unique place to watch the dark nature of our collective humanity, as if under a microscope, something I have done for the past 16 years. The first 10 as an officer, and the last 6 as a drug treatment specialist. I'm excited to talk about these subjects with her and you, and look forward to exploring the depths of some interesting rabbit holes. So let's dive into our first case. The case of Janet Moses that we heard earlier was the subject of a documentary on Netflix called Belief, The Possession of Janet Moses. So if you're interested in learning more about this or or kind of seeing the visual of this story, it's a really good one to check out. So David and I, we watched this and we had some pretty strong and differing reactions to what was going on in this case. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a very tragic story. And um, I believe that it could have gone very differently. But it actually led to a pretty heated discussion, and that discussion is what gave us the idea to do this podcast in the first place. I wouldn't call it heated. I would say animated, maybe passionate. Right, right. Yeah, no, maybe heated wasn't. Passionate, definitely. (laughs) It was a lively conversation between two scholars. Yeah, and it, it was pretty intellectual in nature. And that, I mean, I think that just, again, highlights what nerds we are, that it was like a Friday night We had worked in prison all week. We come home, we watch this documentary, and then we have like this very intellectual conversation, passionate conversation for like two hours after that. So that's the level of like nerdity. I don't know if that's even a word. I like that word. That's what you're dealing with with us in our podcast. But anyway, we wanted to talk about, you know, kind of our beliefs about what what was going on in this case. You know, to be clear, I never have met this woman. I haven't met her family. I can't give a a diagnosis for her, say for sure what was going on. But, you know, given the information in the documentary and in the articles I've read about her, it seems to me pretty likely that Miss Moses was experiencing a psychotic disorder. There are a few different disorders that are psychotic in nature. And when I say psychotic, I mean the person is basically losing touch with reality or has lost touch with reality. These people experience symptoms such as hallucinations, which is hearing or seeing things that are not actually there, delusions, where they have a false belief that is fixed and does not change even in the face of conflicting evidence, and disorganization. So their speech doesn't make sense. It kind of is jumbled. They may act in very strange or bizarre ways, or they may express emotions that are not consistent with the situation. So the most common psychotic disorder is schizophrenia, which I'm guessing most people have heard of. It actually exists in approximately 1% of the population, and that's not just in the United States, but worldwide. We don't know exactly what causes it, but we know that for the majority of people, they'll first start experiencing symptoms of this disorder when they're in their their late teens or early 20s. So Miss Moses, as you recall, was 22 years old when all of this started. So she was really prime age for developing a disorder like this. Additionally, people who have schizophrenia often will experience their first psychotic break after a particularly stressful event or series of events. And that was also the case for Miss Moses. So, you know, even though we don't know exactly what causes schizophrenia, we do know that it's mainly biological in nature. There's a strong genetic component. And one current theory is that it may actually be caused by a virus. Either way, it's believed that an imbalance in brain chemicals is what causes those psychotic symptoms that I described earlier in schizophrenia and in the other psychotic disorders. 
But before there was really a field of psychology, there was a belief that individuals who had schizophrenia were actually possessed. And in fact, demonic possession was an explanation for other disorders as well. So another one that comes to mind is epilepsy. As I said earlier, people with psychotic disorders will experience or, or tend to experience delusions, which are those false fixed beliefs, and hallucinations, so that's again the hearing and seeing things that other people can't hear or see. And how these symptoms are expressed are really related to a person's culture. So in the United States, we're pretty technologically obsessed. And so many individuals with psychosis have delusions that involve technology. If a person's culture believes that demonic possession can occur, and many cultures hold that belief, I could see the person having the delusion that they're possessed or interpreting their, hallu their hallucinatory experiences as being caused by demons. But also, as I said earlier, the main premise of a delusion is that it's false. So just because an individual believes their symptoms are caused by possession or technology or whatever else, it doesn't make it true. It's also important to point out that the vast majority of people with psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia, don't believe that they're mentally ill. They have no insight into the fact that their beliefs or their experiences are not reflective of reality. So that was really my viewpoint on what was going on with Miss Moses. Right. So David, let's hear let's hear your viewpoint. Okay. First I want to start off by saying I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um I think really? that's something. Really? Do you really not disagree? <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree with the mental health the mental health diagnosis. I think um this may certainly have been the case and what is most unfortunate is that we'll never really know because Miss Moses passed away. Right. Um, and we we don't have any uh, data or any uh, knowledge about any psychiatric interventions that were really explored with her before she passed away. Uh, so I have to concede that th th there's a possibility as somebody who is committed to the pursuit of truth like you in this case that we have to concede that um, that could be the case. I mean, it could be as simple as that. For me, though, what really stood out was some cultural issues. Well, there was a number of issues that make this situation significantly more opaque, so to speak, than that. Um, the first one, that, and the first thing that st stood out to me and that is a problem with this, is that I think it's very easy to diagnose this or and dismiss this case as something as mental health because she passed away, because the exorcism did not work. And it's sort of this idea that, well, since she died from the exorcism, she must have been mentally ill. And I think this is an oversimplified way to look at the situation for a number of reasons. Um, I think it also highlights what I would call a false dichotomy that we set up when we're looking at something that's difficult to explain. In other words, it has to be either all the way one way or it has to be completely the other way and i don't think that that is the case i think that it's more complicated this particular situation so for instance we have to talk about the cultural background of the people involved i said these were members of a family that belonged to the maori culture which are the indigenous people of new zealand it has been suggested that this whole incident was simply a case of miss moses's mental illness being interpreted through a narrow cultural lens which led to the belief that she was possessed the problem with this is that it assumes that this entire family was somehow invested in a kind of magical form of thinking and not really capable of being rational human beings. And I find this very unlikely. This was like 
not a tribe of people hidden deep in a rainforest for hundreds of years only to be suddenly thrust into the modern era. These are people who live and work here today in the greater society. While they were insulated as a family, they weren't isolated. And I would argue that they had access to all Western medical care that they needed, and they probably used this pretty regularly. Um, second, there are is issues with trust at play as, uh, as well. And I think that this is well taken and probably rightfully so. Um, I personally have been involved in therapeutic relationships with people from native cultures here in the United States who have a difficult time trusting that I am there to help them. Uh, this, you know, has its roots in history and the legacy of colonization that we have here in the United States with native peoples. And I'm sure other countries have that as well. It's not surprising to me that this family would choose to seek help within their own community first. None of the articles I have seen really delve into this issue, and that's of cultural difference and competency. One point that is brought up in the story that highlights what I'm talking about is that of the theft of the statues. Right, right. Uh, so it's almost like this point was made to illustrate just how magical in nature the family's thinking was when dealing with Janet. I think using this example as a way to illustrate their thinking flaws is highly suspect. Like anyone, we often take time to reflect on bad things that we've done when we are faced with adversity as a, a way of sort of acknowledging our karmic responsibility, for lack of a better term. Um, what have I done to deserve this, in other words? Yeah, and you hear people say that all the time. And, and like, or, or even other people, well, they had it coming. So I think that is a very common belief or sure. thought process. Sure. And so in this case, the family deciding to return something that they stole, whether it was a relic from antiquity or just a piece of concrete, it's just them wanting to make a situation right by returning it. And I, I think what could returning the statue hurt? So I think this point in the, whole, in the scenario is way overemphasized. And I think quite deliberately to make the situation seem simpler than it really is. Okay. I mean, I, I, I kind of disagree, Right. but that, you know, but that's, we, we don't agree on this case. And, and so that, that's going to come out. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so there's some, there's some cultural issues here going on. And I think that we need to be sensitive to those, um, for lack of a better word, but I think we definitely need to acknowledge that there is some major cultural differences, some major belief differences at play here. Yeah. And, and I agree. And I, I'm not saying that possession doesn't exist. I mean, I'm I'm a Catholic, and as many of you know, the Catholic faith absolutely believes in demonic possession and in the utility of the right of exorcism. However, they also recognize that it may also be mental illness, and sure. that it's probably more likely that somebody is experiencing either a medical or a psychiatric problem, and that's why they require people to be evaluated and I think you're going to talk a little bit about the psychiatrist that does those evaluations in a moment right but they they understand that yeah I mean possession it exists but it's also very rare and it's probably more likely explained by these other more common disorders well you know you know that we have a disagreement about that as well and I I agree with you I think that uh, introducing the psychological, the psychi um, psychiatric mm -hmm. um, part of this, and going through that before they are um, willing to blame demonic possession is probably very smart on their part. But I really personally believe it wasn't 
driven because the Catholic Church was so willing to accept it. I think it was more having to do with liability. It has to do with uh, the fact that they probably don't want to be sued. <laughs> Which, I mean, I, I can't blame them. I can't either. I, I, I think it's incredibly it. smart. I mean, I think that either, however we get to people getting mental health evaluations, medical evaluations is a good thing. True. So whatever the case is. True. We just disagree on the reasoning behind it. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let's talk about possession as a, as a larger topic. In terms of possession as a wider phenomenon, there is certainly a lot of evidence to suggest that it is real, although an admittedly uncommon occurrence. Throughout history, there have been many cases of people feeling like an outside presence has taken over their body. People do things they wouldn't normally do. Um, by far, I would argue, the most common example of this is someone who drinks too much. We all know people whose personalities change after drinking, almost as if they're they're being taken over by something or someone different. In this sense, it is an interesting fact that we refer to alcohol as spirits. That that is interesting. I never I never really thought about that. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And we all know somebody like that. We have all had friends like that. I've even been that way from time to time. Speak for yourself, Dr. Morelos. <laughs> so we'll post some articles about this topic as it pertains to alcohol, but the premise is this. People become possessed, quote unquote, so to speak, much more often than we think. Whether or not you want to argue if this is objectively true or not, there seems to be much in the subjective experience of it. So you're saying that like necessarily that demonic spirits are overtaking people's bodies but that people have an experience where it feels like they are not in control of themselves or they are not themselves all the time a matter of fact i think that is the root for a lot of basic fears and we'll get to alien possess you know alien abductions at some point i'm sure oh i'm sure (laughs) but i think that that is the same basic fear at play is okay. not being able to control ourselves and our faculties. Yeah. You know, interesting. having, having yeah. some presence take us over. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. So the subjective experience is a huge part of the case with Janet Moses as well. There were issues dealing with her consent given to the family, allowing them to perform the exorcism on her. This was a big part of the subsequent trial of those who were charged in her death. According to the story... Miss Moses did consent to the exorcism. This, to me, suggests that she herself felt that something dark had taken over her body, mind, and soul. Again, I do not believe that Miss Moses was incapable of thinking rationally at this point. Even she felt she was possessed. This was the case with Annalise Michelle, the German woman whose story was the basis for the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Also, like, a very creepy movie. Sure. If you guys have never seen it. Yeah. Also another tragic story. Uh Right. Tragic story because she died in the process of the exorcism as well. Right. But had given her consent because she felt she was possessed. Yes. And she was a devout Catholic. So kind of even different cultural pieces there. Glad you brought that up. So here we have two, two women from very different cultures with the same belief that they have been possessed by something outside of them. At some point, we need to give credit to what the person is telling us, given what they perceive. Perception is reality for that person, whether we like it or not. Obviously, it could be argued that neither woman was in her right mind at the time of consent, making them incompetent or incapable of judging what's in their own best interest. But in each of these cases, it would presuppose that those wanting to help them, the family of Miss Moses and the family of Annalise Michelle, are all arguably clear-minded people that they missed this as well. 
in the case of Miss Moses, it would suggest that her entire family who were present, which was about 40 people, right? Yeah, I think it was about 40 people, right? When she died, that they were all incapable of seeing that she was mentally ill and not possessed. That seems very far-fetched to me. Okay. I, I mean, I think that if if that wasn't kind of part of what they're familiar with, that wasn't really kind of the way that they addressed these type of problems. And perhaps they had never seen anybody who was severely mentally ill. I mean, a lot of people don't have a lot of experience working with somebody who's floridly psychotic. And when you see that, it's it can be very scary because the person really acts like they are not themselves. So I could see how they also misinterpreted what was going on. And, and I want to speak to that issue of consent as well. You know, I, I believe that Miss Moses and Louise Michelle, that they both did consent to the exorcisms. In the case of Miss Moses, the problem was that there was no mechanism for her to withdraw her consent. Right. All of her efforts were interpreted as the demon. Mm-hmm. So this created a very dangerous kind of no-out situation. And if the argument is that, well, at that point, she wasn't competent to withdraw her consent, then shouldn't that have been the same argument with her giving her consent at the beginning? You know, I mean, I just, I feel like... Hmm that was the danger in this it's like yeah she said okay that's fine and then when she was feeling afraid when she couldn't breathe and she told them to stop nobody listened it was like oh that's just the demon right and they continued on and that's what resulted in her death right and i think that's probably the biggest problem here uh, there's there's no question that that is a a huge problem in this case is that there really was no way for her to revoke consent even when she was in excruciating pain. Right. And and I think the reason that that happened, you know, we talked about the first elder. He came in, he basically told the family, you need to handle this. And then he left. He didn't recommend any sort of medical or psychiatric evaluation. Um, but then they called in that second elder at right. the end. Right. And I really feel like that was that was the person that saved the teenage girl from death. You know, he at least kind of saw, he was able to bring in this outside perspective. Mm-hmm. I think when the first elder left, he he didn't lead the family through the ritual. So that was part of it. They didn't really know what they were doing. And then the family became this really closed group because there, was no, there were no outsiders present. Right. So it really resulted in a kind of group think, I think, where everyone was basically agreeing with everyone. No one was bringing in any of that outside perspective. And then, you know, they had not slept. I'm sure that that impacted and and impaired their judgment. And so really, you know, we talked about the court ended up convicting five of the family members. And I think that the court, they got it right because I, I do feel like they were responsible for her death. Um, but I, I also feel like the punishment was appropriate, they, that they had already suffered by losing their family member. And I think having them go to that cultural awareness class, where maybe they were able to get some additional education on mental health, was appropriate. I'm curious to know what that cultural awareness class pertained to. I'm, I'm curious to know what the curriculum for that was. Yeah, and we, I, you know, I, I couldn't find any details on what was actually covered. Right. But given kind of the context, I, I assumed that maybe it was bringing in this other perspective. See, again, there's this cultural issue that I think is a problem because w- these people are being asked to trust in the medicine of a colonizing force. Right. 
Yeah. Right. So, because there are so many cultural issues that you just cannot get away from in this in this in this story, then that part of it is is that so with the with the integration, if you want to call it that, of these two cultures, you have one culture that would normally have a way that they would deal with people like this. Yeah. And I'm going to get to this a little bit later on. I'll say more about it. But then, because you have this colonizing force that comes in and says, "No, well, we know what's best for you." You have this sort of idea that their cultural practices are now watered down almost, or they are compromised in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so they're not able to do completely what they would normally do. And yet they're not able to completely embrace the colonizing forces medicine either. And so you have this halfway point that leads to, I don't know. I mean, I just think that it's it's not effective in either sense. Well, and I wonder what, and I don't know if there's been any research done on this. I, I know that you said that you're aware that, that there has been some recent research done on exorcism. But I'm wondering about situations where both can come together. Where, you know, if a person, let's say they are mentally ill and they have a belief that they're being possessed. Right. What would happen if they got medication and they were went through the ritual that is what their culture would normally do okay. to address it. I, I just wonder what the outcomes would be in situations like that. Okay, good. So now now we're starting to get into, I think, we're starting to get away from that the binary, that, that false dichotomy that says it has to be one way or the other. But let's say that we have things going on in different correlates. Mm-hmm. We have something going on in a biological correlate, and then we have a very distinct experience going on in this interior correlate as well. So almost treating it from multiple angles. So doing the the psychiatric treatment, but also engaging in spiritual treatment and acknowledging that these two problems can coexist at the same time. There may be a psychiatric problem and a spiritual crisis occurring at the same time. Okay. So in terms of the possession, let's talk a little bit about Dr. Richard Gallagher. Yeah. So there are those people who do acknowledge the existence of possession and are considered highly intelligent and rational people. Take, for instance, Dr. Richard Gallagher. He's a psychiatrist from Yale University. He currently teaches at Columbia and New York Medical College. He's the guy who is often consulted when possession is suspected in a person as someone who can bring a very medically based opinion to the table before possession is considered. He himself claims that while possession is rare, it is a very real thing and that he offers many stories of his experiences to back up this claim. Um, We'll post a link on an article about him uh, on the website. But one of the biggest points he makes is that someone rooted in medicine and science can still see and experience things they can't explain. Dr. Gallagher, who who has probably seen more evidence of possession than any other physician in the world, has seen enough to convince him that possession is real. I won't give away what exactly he claims to have seen, so you'll have to check out the article. But remember, this is a very highly regarded psychiatrist and not someone completely invested in a theology. As part of his profession, he has to remain grounded in the world of medicine and science. And like we were discussing before, I think a a person like him is probably what was most missing from this case. Because then we could have had this other perspective as well. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So final thoughts time? Go ahead. Okay, so so my fi- final thoughts are these. I'm not saying that possession does not exist or that there are not people who've been helped by exorcism because uh, I, I believe there clearly have been. However, I believe that if it does exist, it's exceedingly rare. 
And most cases are actually going to be a mental health disorder or a medical problem. And I think that if somebody is going to go forth with an exorcism, you know, it shouldn't ever be the the default treatment. You know, I think that you have to look at those other areas first. And I also think that if someone is going to go forward with an exorcism, that there needs to be an outside authority who's experienced in it and that they're present and kind of leading that ritual. I, I definitely agree with that. I don't know what the breakdown was in terms of that, or if this was actually something that the Maori people believe in, that, that an elder comes in, sort of says, here, this is what you need to do, and then leaves. I, I don't know. Enough about Maori culture to say whether one way or the other how that goes. But I think um, in the end, while tragic in every sense, the situation of Janet Moses brings to light the interplay between culture and belief and how we navigate these things with some sort of competency I think that Miss Moses' family tried to integrate her experiences within a culture that truly cared for and loved her, which is how this probably would have been handled by a tribal culture thousands of years ago, long before Western psychological knowledge and pharmaceuticals. In other words, the tribe would have come together in support of this person and made special concessions to support them in a loving way, maybe even framing her erratic behavior as a gift of some sort. I wonder what would happen to St. Teresa of Avila if she were here today. Would she still be considered a mystic or would she be institutionalized as a psychotic somewhere? Yeah, good question. So obviously there was a great deal of family support from Miss Moses. The court seemed to recognize this as well. While held criminally responsible for her death, none of the members of her family were incarcerated, but rather it was determined that their suffering and grief were enough punishment. This seems to suggest that the authorities were sympathetic to the situation and to the intentions of Miss Moses' family, regardless of the outcome. So lastly, as I stated in the beginning, I don't necessarily disagree with the mental illness argument. I would probably argue that in this case, it illustrates how there can be biological correlates to very real experiences, supernatural or otherwise. So if Miss Moses and her family believed she was possessed, then perhaps she was. That was the experience they were living. Could there have been a mental health component to this as well? Of course there could have been. These two things are not mutually exclusive. I think we need to look at them as things that can exist in the same space if we are truly to see the whole picture moving forward. My fear is that the Western medical model would have completely colonized this experience as a biologically based mental illness which would have sort of disregarded it as an experience, I think, um, within the context of her culture and probably would have medicated her and called it a day. And maybe she'd still be alive. Yeah, well, that's true. Just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. Right, you're right. Maybe she still would have, she would still be alive. I, I, you know, we have to concede that for sure. I mean, regardless of all points about how we deal with cultures interacting and our cultural sensitivity and cultural imperialism or cultural appropriation or whatever it is, those topics, we have to look at this clearly. And yeah, I think that that was definitely the missing piece. Well, and I think it just shows that that issues that even at first glance seem very simple are usually pretty complex. So now we want to know what you think. Do you think demonic possession is real? Do you think that Janet Moses was possessed? Do you think she was mentally ill? Do you think it was some combination? 
If you're interested in watching the documentary again, it's called Belief, the Possession of Janet Moses. We have some links to articles about Janet Moses and Dr. Richard Gallagher on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We also have a link to a website explaining psychotic symptoms. So if you're interested in learning more about those and a link to to an article discussing the experience of possession and alcohol use. Please be sure to leave your comments on our website and to visit our Facebook page at Psychology After Dark. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. We could really use that. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We will be posting new episodes every other week, so please join us for our next episode where we will be discussing everybody's favorite topic, psychopaths. Psychopaths. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a final word from myself thanks for joining us and for giving us some leeway all the production is done by us in-house and if you hear a snoring dog uh in the background that's because we're doing it at home (laughs) with our three dogs uh laying here next to us so once again thank you for joining us thanks for listening and uh hopefully as time goes on our mic technique and our editing skills will get significantly better yeah so we'll see you next time see you next time The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. It is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by me, Dr. Jessica McCono, and by Dr. David Morelos. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. Our theme song is Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop, provided by Jamendo.